We're in the midst of a verse-by-verse study. We are now in the sixth chapter of John's Gospel. And we'll look this morning at the, the sole sufficient bread for the soul. Soul sufficiency, S-O-L-E, the only, the solitary, the singular sufficiency that the bread of Christ is for the soul, S-O-U-L. He is it. He is all. He's the only one that can possibly satisfy your S-O-U-L soul. For Jesus said, I'm the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. Jesus is is the bread and the water for the soul. The brilliance of bread is that it satisfies hunger. The wonder of water is that it's the only thing that can possibly sustain life. It's the only source that's able to quench the most parched thirst. And I want to raise a general question this morning before we begin. Seeing that Jesus is the bread of life and He's the living water of life, is so many people profess to be Christian, especially here in America, why is it that countless masses of people who claim to know Him have so much unrest and striving for those things that are of momentary value. Ponder that for a moment. Why is that? And on a more personal note, I'll ask this question. Are you hungering? Are you thirsting for those things of which are temporary? Or are you hungering and thirsting for Jesus Christ? Does your soul grumble with the hunger pains of dissatisfaction? Does it seem like something is missing in your life? And we must ask ourselves, is, is my delight in the Lord? Do I find rest? Do I find assurance? Do I find delight in Jesus Christ alone? Psalm 37.4 says, Delight yourself in the Lord Psalm 100, verse 2. Serve the Lord with gladness. Philippians 4, verse 4 says, Rejoice in the Lord. How often? Always. Again I say, rejoice. Now as we read that, we we realize that those are not suggestions. Those are commands. Commandments. Psalm 16, 11 King David says, In your presence is fullness of joy. In your, in your right hand there are pleasures forever. What he means is that there's no experience that can possibly match the close relationship that he had with God. David was joyful and, and, and satisfied in God, in his relationship with God. John Piper writes, and I quote, One of the most important discoveries I have ever made is this truth. God is most glorified in me when I am most satisfied in Him. This is the essence of what it means to love God, to be satisfied in Him. Loving God may include obeying His commandments, it may include believing all His word, but the essence of loving God is enjoying all that He is. 
It would be presumptuous not to thank Him for His gifts, but it would be idolatry to call the gladness we get from them a love for God. It is the enjoyment of God that glorifies His worth most fully. End quote. King David says again in Psalm 42, verse 1, As a deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. This is a deep desire for God alone that David has. Not for the things that he provides, but for the person of God. He is the bread that gives life. He's the water that satisfies the soul. And may our hearts be prepared this morning as we witness the bread come down from heaven as you turn in your Bibles to the sixth chapter of John's Gospel and we will look at in detail verses 30 through 40. Just prior to this point here in verse 30, Jesus said to the masses that were following Him, this mob that was seeking Him, we came to realize through the teaching last week that these were unbelievers, superficial seekers of Jesus Christ. And He said to them that the work of God is that you believe in Him and whom He sent. To believe in the One whom the Father has sent from heaven, which is Jesus Christ. In response to that, verse 30, Therefore they said to Him, What sign will you perform then? that we may see it and believe you. What work will you do? Our fathers ate the manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger. He who believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do the will, my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all He has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. And this is the will of Him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in Him may have everlasting life, and I will raise Him up at the last day. Now, we're in the midst of a discourse here of the Lord Jesus Christ to this mob of unbelievers, most of which are unbelievers, Galilean thrill-seekers. In chapter 6 thus far, we've witnessed the the miraculous feeding of the 5,000. 5,000 men, that is. In addition, there would have been women and children, so Jesus would have miraculously fed up word of 10 to 15, perhaps 20,000 people. We witnessed the miracle of Jesus walking on the water as He sent His disciples across the Sea of Galilee, and He went out to them at night when they were in the midst of a storm. 
He, get in, he, get in, he got into the boat and immediately they were at the shore. They go into Capernaum, which is the home base now of Jesus and the disciples, and they, would, they were doing their ministry out of Capernaum. And the mob that he fed the day before were out seeking him. They witnessed the disciples get to get into the boat. Jesus commanded his disciples to get into the boat. They witnessed that. But they also recognized that Jesus never got into the boat. So as they went about in their boats and went to the other side the next day, they asked Jesus, they inquired of him, how did you get over here? We saw the disciples get into the boat, but you never got into the boat. How did you get over here? Jesus goes on to confront them, rebuke them, as we'll see in a moment with a little review. But this morning we're going to examine the striking statement of Jesus Christ that I am the bread of life. And this expression is the first of the seven great I am statements that Jesus makes in the Gospel of John. He also said that I am the light of the world in John chapter 8. He referred to himself as the door of the sheepfold in chapter 10, verses 7 and 9. He said, I am the good shepherd. Chapter 10, verse 11 and 14. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. In John 11. In chapter 14, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And in chapter 15, Jesus said, I am the true vine. So these great statements declare the person and the work of Jesus Christ as Savior of the world. Now last time we observed these masses that were miraculously fed, how they tracked them down. And they began to inquire of Jesus. They began to raise questions. And rather than Jesus answering their questions, Jesus questions their motives. Their motives for what? For seeking Him. You know, all kinds of people seek Jesus. But it's not to know Him. It's not to know Him. Because Jesus goes on, as was revealed last time, He proceeds to reveal the reasons for their following, and then He rebukes their seeking Him out. He reveals the reason why, and then He rebukes them for the purpose in which they sought Him. Now, Jesus, unlike many pastors today, never said... You know, we have to meet seekers where they're at. You have to meet them where they're at. You know, you just can't come right out with a teaching of Scripture. That'll scare them away. You know what? To assume that, if you assume that you have to meet people where they're at, that, what that assumes is that wherever they're at, the living, active Word of God can't reach them. May it never be. Because it's the Word of God, is, it's the only thing that's going to reach them. You don't water it down. So Christ's miracles and his rebuke of these superficial seekers set the stage for this speech. First, a quick review. If you remember, Jesus gets right to the point in verse 26 and he said, You seek me, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and you were filled up. So he reprimands their seeking him out. You know, oftentimes they'll go, Oh, well, it's great, they're seeking Jesus. Oh, are they? Are they really? He says, you only came because you were all foddered up. Remember the word fodder? To be foddered up. Filled means foddered. It means to stuff like you would stuff an animal, like a barnyard animal full of, full of straw or hay. 
You stuff them to the gills. Basically what he's saying is, you know, you're, you're like a gathering of animals here, which are all foddered up and you're back for another load of fill. Your bellies were satisfied. That's the only reason you're here, he's saying. Does that sound seeker sensitive? I don't think so. He goes on in verse 27. Do not labor for food which perishes, but for the food which endures to what? To everlasting life. And only the Son of God can give this kind of food. Why? Because Jesus said, He has been approved by God the Father as the sole dispenser. The only source of e this eternal sustenance. This eternal substance. He is it. He is that bread. And then these false disciples reply in verse 28, Well, what shall we do then with, that we may work the works of God? So they, they misunderstand the gist of the Lord's exclusive claim here. He's it. Their focus was works. Jesus said, you want to know what the work is? The work is that you believe. Why? Because He's the only one that can work it. Salvation for anyone. He did the work. He came to do the work. If you want to do the work, you must believe. You must entrust yourself fully and completely to Christ, the one who did the work. This group never doubted the, the, the power of Christ. There was never a doubt in the mind of anyone that Jesus performed miracles. It was well recognizable. Time and time again. But what they didn't understand was his purpose. They understood his power. They didn't understand his purpose or his person. So Jesus sets them straight as to what this work is all about. Verse 29, this is the work of God that you believe in him and whom he sent. To believe in God incarnate, Jesus. This comes through belief. You cannot, we do not, work for it ourselves. It's impossible. You know, as believers, the faith that you exercise, the faith that I exercise is the fruit of God's divine activity in you. He works salvation in, we're called to work it what? Out. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. The only reason you can work it out is because He, by His divine providence and sovereignty, has worked it into you. It's a grace gift. Salvation is all of grace. Can't work for it. You work from it. We serve from the cross because of what He's done. And there's fruit. If there's no fruit in someone's life, it's evident that salvation has never been worked in, no matter, regardless of what they say with their mouth. So the, the evidence of their unbelief is revealed here through their goal of, of challenging Jesus to prove His power. In verse 29, He claims it. And they want him to prove it. So now in verses 30 to 40, there are four things to take notice of here. First, and the, these are outlined in your bulletin, the first two things to notice are the decadent requests which these false disciples attempt to make of Christ. The decadent requests of these false disciples. Followed by two definitive replies of Christ. Meaning his authoritative answer or his final conclusion to their little self-gratifying requests. Decadent request number one, verse 30 and 31. Therefore they said to him, What sign will you perform then that we may see it and believe you? What work will you do? 
Our fathers ate the manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Now, remember, Jesus is teaching with bold authority here. He's teaching in a synagogue, and we know this because of verse 59 of John chapter 6. When they went to Capernaum, he went into the synagogue and he began to teach them. In this entire discourse, most of John chapter 6 is in that synagogue. You know, no matter how much evidence an unbeliever is given, you know they're never satisfied. The power of Christ can be seen over and over and over again in their lives and they'll never ever be satisfied. And such was the case with this mob. You know, false converts also, they're always making demands of Christ. They're always pounding their fist. If you're real, show me this. If you're real, give me this. If you're, if you're real, make me better of this. Clear me of this. Get me out of this. Fix me of this. Just another sign of a false convert. Now remember, Jesus not only fed this mob supernaturally, he was also expelling disease out of all of Galilee. Matthew chapter 4, verse 23, Jesus went about all Galilee teaching, preaching, healing, all kinds of sickness, all kinds of disease among the people. And then his fame went out through all of Syria. And they brought to him all sick people who were afflicted with various diseases and torments, demon possession, epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. And this is what supposed believers do today as well. They're constantly pursuing size, signs, miracles, and wonders. Supposed signs, miracles, and wonders. They're always looking for the next experience. Rather than the unadulterated Word of the living God. They want sensationalism. They want to see another trick. This is what they were after. Jesus is healing everyone. He's multiplying bread. Man, very easy to follow a Savior like that. Very easy. Now, if you remember back in verses 14 and 15, they recognized Him because of the miracles as the promised one that would come like Moses. That Moses actually prophesied about. Now, you would think that after feeding upward of 10, 15,000 people, that that was validation enough for them. Wouldn't you think so? Healing all of these sicknesses and so on, multiplying this food, you would think that would be enough to cause them to bow down in fear, adoration, repentance, and belief. But it's not. It's never enough for the unbeliever. They simply want more sensationalism. And in this case, they wanted more food. That's all they want. They want their bellies filled you know, they go on and they make reference of their forefathers eating manna in the wilderness. Leon read from a bit of that this morning. So it's, it's likely here that they're demanding permanent food. Okay? They're saying, look, Jesus, you gave us a supernatural sign yesterday, the supernatural miracle yesterday of feeding us thousands. But you know what Moses did? He fed a million plus in the wilderness six days, six days a week for 40 years. Top that. Can you outdo that, Jesus? That'll be sign enough then if you can outdo that. Show us. Give us a sign. Their taste buds were satisfied. Their tummies were satisfied. So they were back for more. And Jesus confronts them. That's the only reason you're here is because you're stuffed like a bunch of cattle. 
He didn't mince words, did he? Never. Now, their evil, carnal pleasures have blinded them from the fact that the one who's proclaiming the truth is the only one that can satisfy their soul and save their wretched sinfulness from eternal destruction. The Savior of the world was standing there, and because their focus was on what He could provide physically, they missed their spiritual need in the provider. The fact that their sin nature needed to be redeemed, they missed it. This, you know, this show us a sign. This is reflective of Matthew chapter 12 when the Pharisees and the scribes confront Jesus and some of them came and they answered saying, Teachers, we, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and he said to them, Only an evil and adulterous generation seek after a sign. They were seeking after a sign in addition to everything he'd already proven of himself. And they're now confronted with corrective, definitive answers from our Lord. And they even quote scripture. They quote Exodus 16:15, where he says, He gave them bread from heaven. Jesus is convinced now that they're focused far, they're, they're placing much too much attention upon Moses and his ministry rather than on God, the one who's the true provider of that manna that they're referring to long ago. So then he begins with the emphatic here. He said, Most assuredly, verily, verily, Amen, Amen. And it leads us to his response. Definitive answer number one of the Lord, verses 32 and 33. Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. You know, your first mistake, ladies and gentlemen, is what he's saying, is that Moses didn't provide for your forefathers the manna that they ate in the first place. It was God who provided that. In Exodus 16.4, we read it for ourselves. It says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will rain down from heaven for you. And the people shall go out and gather a certain quota every day. Then I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. If you're a believer, you will be put to the test. You will, to guarantee. We witnessed that when Jesus instructed his disciples to get into the boat. True disciples will be put through testing. It's not to prove anything to God. It's to prove what you're really made of. Does your life match your profession, the profession of your mouth, you see? And then your second misunderstanding, Jesus says to them, is that that bread wasn't true bread from heaven. That bread came supernaturally. He goes on, My Father gives you the true bread from heaven. Manna was given by God supernaturally, amen? But it, it was only to accomplish a physical purpose. It was to sustain God's people in the wilderness, those of which would become a nation. That nation would provide the bloodline of which Jesus Christ, the Messiah, that's who He would come through. So it was for a physical purpose. You know, Jesus, the Lord also upheld the Israelites in the wilderness for 40 years in that He caused, caused their clothes not to wear out, their shoes to wear out. Imagine having the same pair of shoes for 40 years. Deuteronomy 29.5 And I have led you 40 years in the wilderness. Your clothes have not worn out on you. Your sandals have not worn out on your feet. 
You've not eaten bread, nor have you drunk wine or similar drink, that you may know that I am the Lord your God. Bread as we know it, wine, which was a staple in that day, bread and wine were two dietary staples, of which God did not provide for those 40 years. He provided water out of a rock, and He provided manna out of heaven. And when they complained and whined and moaned, He, he provided so much quail when they wanted meat that they stuffed themselves to where they couldn't eat anymore. So they neither ate bread nor drank wine for 40 years. Jesus said the true bread from heaven gives more than physical satisfaction. This bread gives spiritual satisfaction. True bread, the, the, the Greek word for true means genuine or original. And he's standing before them. He's standing right there before them, proclaiming this truth. So the focus here is not on the amount of bread. Not on the amount of bread that Jesus provided, nor on the amount of manna in which God provided through Moses, but rather the kind of bread that only Jesus can supply. The focus is on the kind of bread. Now, notice this most important next phrase, verse 33. For the bread of God is He who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Not just to Israel, but to the world. To Jews and to Gentiles. So, Jesus is claiming here to be the authentic, solitary source of all spiritual nourishment. Only He can provide it. Only He can satisfy such a hunger. You know, this may be an indirect reference to Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. So he humbled you, Moses says to the Israelites, he allowed you to hunger and fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your, for, your fathers know, that he might make you know that man shall not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. Now, these are the very words that were spoken by Jesus when he was tempted in the wilderness by Satan himself. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 4, Jesus, in his humanity, in the wilderness, faced by the enemy of our soul, Satan, said, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So here's Jesus, the Word. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This is the Word of God. Jesus Christ, God incarnate, God come down, became a man, defending Himself with the temptation of Satan with the Word. The Word of God. This is an awesome statement here, having come down from heaven. This is another claim of deity. When I talk about deity, this, is, this means that Jesus is God. Self-proclamation here. The very bread that comes down from heaven. Now we see this again in verse 38. I've come down from heaven. In John chapter 8, Jesus said, I proceeded forth and I came from God. He sent me. In John 13.3, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into His hands and that He had come from God and was going to God, rose from supper and laid aside His garments. In John 16.28, I come forth from the Father and have come into the world. In John 17.8, 
Jesus praying to the Father. He said, I came forth from you, and they have believed that you sent me. Referring to the eleven true disciples. Judas at that point had departed. So Jesus claims repeatedly, I come from heaven, I come from heaven, I am from heaven. And then, in response, decadent request number two in verse 34. This is actually more of a command. Then they said to him, Lord, give us this bread. How often? Always. Always. This is a linear command. In other words, they're saying, give us this bread and keep giving us this bread. We'll take it forever and ever. We want it forever and ever. And this request is very similar, as you'll recall, to the request of the woman at the well. Jesus meets the woman at the well. He's talking about living water and one ear and out the other. It goes right by. John 4.14 Whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst, but the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst nor come here or have to draw any longer. She missed it. In both cases, their request indicates that they did not understand the true meaning of what Jesus was declaring here. So this reveals a materialistic frame of mind. Everything that they were hungering for and thirsting for was outward. They missed their need inside. They missed the soul satisfaction that only Christ can provide. So they're still trapped in the mindset of, of daily supply. Outward satisfaction. You know, this is the condition of the natural man or natural woman. People who are natural means they're unbelievers. They cannot understand the things of God for they are what? Foolishness to them. You ever talk to someone about the truth of God? The true gospel? And they look at you kind of like a deer in the headlights? The RCA dog, you know? Ooh, they don't get it. They can't get it. It's impossible because they're still natural. They're in a natural state. You believe and you understand, if you're a believer here today, you believe and understand because you've been supernaturally transformed on the ins from the inside out by the grace of God that enables you to comprehend. It's a grace gift. They do not and they cannot comprehend the things of God absolutely foreign to them. It's typical of any false disciple. They're not crying out for mercy. Notice they're not crying out to, Lord, give me understanding. I don't understand. Give me understanding. No. They're saying, give me this bread and just keep on giving it to me. I'll take it. I'll take it. I'll take it. I want to be satisfied. Fed. I want to have a home. And I want to have a bunch of stuff. And I'll be good. And yeah, I'll call you, Lord. No problem. You be the man in my life, Jesus. And they have a very demanding attitude. Their prayers are like, Lord, give me this, give me that, give me this, fix me, heal me. John MacArthur writes about this, and I quote, he says, their continuing desire to use Jesus for their physical needs is evident from this demand and a clear indication of their superficial interest. It still marks today the shallow, temporary followers of Jesus who fill churches looking for their needs and their desires to be met. They're always, there are always churches that accommodate them. Today, they are often the places that draw the largest crowds, but they have the lowest percentage of true believers. 
end quote. It is what it is. If you've ever been part of a very large church, it's very unlikely that they treat, teach the Word of God verse by verse. Why? Because that just chafes human pride. Your eventually it's going to just chafe you. Get under your skin. People don't want the truth of God's Word. They want some super sensationalistic type of feeling, perhaps some emotional response that will move them or tickle them. So as demanding as these misinformed artificial seekers of Jesus are, because they've missed his point, Jesus now goes on to identify himself explicitly. They said, give us this bread forever. Then you have definitive answer number two. We see it in verses 35 to 40. Verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. It doesn't get much clearer than that, does it? I am that bread. And he who comes to me shall never hunger... And he who believes in me shall never thirst. So here we have I am statement number one of John's Gospel. Now, each I am statement, each of the I am statements of Jesus rep represents a particular relationship of Jesus Christ to the spiritual needs of man. Okay? Again, each I am statement of the Lord Jesus Christ represents a particular relationship of Jesus Christ to the spiritual needs of man and woman. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. In other words, He's the only one that gives spiritual life. Jesus said that I am the light of the world. He's our only light in the midst of sinful darkness. Jesus said, I am the door to the sheepfold. Jesus is the only entrance into eternal security. Jesus said, I am the shepherd, the great shepherd, meaning he's the only guide and protector of our lives spiritually. Jesus said, I'm the resurrection and the life. He's the hope of mankind for what comes after death. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. Meaning, He's our confidence in the midst of confusion, philosophy, and falsehood. He's the truth. And He's the source of our strength and fruitfulness when Jesus declares that I am the vine. Everything that we need in life is all wrapped up in Christ. Notice, everything that Christ provides, look at this, everything that Christ provides, He is. It's all Jesus Christ. He's the only one that can satisfy. Christ is the one who's come down. And he's the only one that you can find rest for your soul in. It's Christ. If you're unsatisfied today, if you've been seeking out, if you're like the prodigal who goes running all over town, you think you're going to find satisfaction in this, that, or the other thing, you're only going to be satisfied for a season and it's off to the next thing and you, like the prodigal, will find yourself in a pig pen. No satisfaction. Ever. Outside of Jesus Christ, there's nothing. There's no religion. There's no philosophy. There's no person. There's no thing that will ever satisfy the thirst and hunger that your soul has. Things or people only satisfy momentarily. The new car smell. That's a good smell. You like that smell? I like that smell. I like going to car lots just to smell the car smell. It's a good smell. It's a tantalizing smell. 
It's a tempting smell. But it fades away. It goes away, doesn't it? Now notice Jesus says here, verse 35, there's two key words to look at. It's come and believe. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. Come and believe. Now, it's not enough to simply believe intellectually with the person and the work of Jesus Christ. There's many, many people who believe the facts that will be in hell. Guaranteed, Jesus said it himself. To truly believe is to come to Christ, who is the very source of spiritual and eternal giving life. He's the only one that can provide it. So coming to Christ means to bow down in, sub- bow down in submission and repentance. To believe. A transfer of trust. All that you are and all that you think you know and to place it into Christ. And then there'll be a desire to naturally want to feed on Him the rest of your life. He provides it. He fulfills that once and for all emptiness and then you have to continually come back because you want to feed because there's an appetite now. If there's no appetite, you're in a very dangerous place where you're not saved. Jesus said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. What's the guarantee? They will be filled. They will be filled. And then this is the group that have come to the bread of life. The bread of life has come to them. They feed on the bread of life and they stand righteous before Almighty God. They stand righteous before the throne just as those described in Revelation chapter 7 verse 15. They are before the throne of God and they serve Him day and night in His temple and He who sits on the throne will dwell among them. Here it is. They shall neither hunger anymore nor thirst anymore. Soul satisfaction. No more hunger pains. Parched thirst quenched forever. He's the only one that can provide that. What do you do when you're hungry? What do you do? You eat, amen? Pretty simple. If you're hungry, you eat. And if you keep on eating, you'll never be hungry. When you're thirsty, you go and you get a drink, and it satisfies your thirst. If you keep on drinking, you'll never be thirsty again. The same is true with the bread of life. He feeds you once and for all and forever, and we keep coming back to be fed. We feed off of Him. We feed on Him, and we'll always be satisfied, and you'll always want more. You always want the only thing that can quench your soul desires and it's Jesus Christ. Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega. The first and last alphabet, letters of the Greek alphabet. He's standing before them. And they're missing it. He's announcing to them to be the only soul-satisfying bread that has come down from heaven and that by coming and believing, you will be saved, he's saying. I've come down from heaven. If you come and you believe, you will be saved. Look at the next word. Verse 36. But, but I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. Now, if you've been with us, you'll recognize that these words echo that of chapter 5, don't they? Jesus addressed the people in Jerusalem back in chapter 5. Here, he's addressing the Galileans. Back in John chapter 5, verse 38, he begins with, But but you do not have his word abiding in you, because whom he sent him you do not believe. You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. 
And these are they which testify of me, but you're not willing to come to me that you may have what? Life. Neither group, the Jews in Jerusalem, nor these Galileans, come to him. They didn't believe in him in the only sense that matters. They definitely believed about his power. They, what they didn't understand was this. They didn't, they didn't understand his purpose. That they needed to be fixed with something more than just this hunger of their stomach. They needed to be redeemed. They needed to be saved because they have a sin nature that is contrary to the purpose and the plan of God. They couldn't see it. They were blind. Now, here's a question. If so many people were able to see Jesus Christ, if these mass mobs of people were able to bear witness of the power of Christ, they never denied His miracles, by the way, ever. If they were able to witness that and, and, and able to partake of that and still didn't come to faith, doesn't that reveal for us that Jesus' mission on earth was a failure to some degree? Does it tell us that? Was his earthly visit a failure? Was his mission fruitless? I, sure, I assure you, no. Absolutely not. I'll assure you also that at this point, Jesus is not bowing his hands and bowing his head, wringing his hands, crying in despair because of their unbelief. Because there's no failure with God. Ever. There's never failure with God. There never was failure with God. And there never will be failure with God. There's a lot of failure with men in recognizing Him as who He is though, isn't there? Amen. The mission of Christ was 100% successful. 100% successful. So the mission of Jesus Christ, or the insurance of His mission on earth, is not dependent on some potential positive response that He's going to get from sinful fallen man, ever. May it never be. There's absolutely no one, there's no thing that can possibly thwart or put the slightest dent into God's sovereign plan of salvation. Nobody. So Christ was in no way discouraged or disheartened by this apparent failure of his earthly ministry because Jesus will now proceed to affirm this fact. And the next words are very conclusive. If you look at Adam in verse 37, he begins with all. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. Now, after dealing with the rejection of his own creatures here, these are the very people that God created. Jesus is God. He created them. They reject Him. Like a ray of light, Jesus now says, All that the Father gives me, they will come. One commentator writes, and I quote, This is like a soliloquy. Like Jesus is talking to Himself out loud. A pensive or a meditative conversation that Christ has with Himself in His own heart, although He said it out loud. In other words, Jesus is saying, I know for certain all that the Father gives me will come. You may not believe, but oh joy, all that the Father gives me will come. End quote. 
This was the encouragement of Jesus in his humanity. Remember, Jesus was not only 100% God, at the same time he was also 100% man, experiencing the rejection of mankind. You ever been rejected? You ever been rejected? Not accepted? Think back to school, if you're the last guy picked for the team, or the last girl. Remember that stuff? Mocked or made fun of in school. Picked at, poked at, beat up, bullied. Imagine that type of rejection. It doesn't even compare to this kind of rejection. The one who came out of heaven, took on humanity, and was rejected by the very ones that he created. But yet, he says, all that the Father gives me will come. This was encouragement for Jesus in his humanity. As he ministered among the very people, most of which would reject him. All that the Father gives me. The word all refers to a unit of one. Very important. The word all refers to a unit of one consisting of everything that the Father has placed under Jesus' control. That all, one unit, given by the Father, will, guaranteed, come to Him. It's a guarantee. So what does that inform us? This informs us of this. That not everyone's going to come. Because not all are given. But all that are given will come. He gives some, but not all. But the all that He gives, guaranteed, they will come. This is an encouragement to anyone who serves in ministry. This is a great encouragement to me as I proclaim the gospel, as I preach the gospel. Because you know what it ensures me of? I don't have to worry about watering down the gospel. I don't have to make it palatable. I don't have to be concerned about pandering to, to humanistic type of fleshful desires and in, in so-called needs. You just proclaim the truth and you can be rest assured that all that are given to the Son will come. It's a guarantee. Amen. Because I preach the gospel in public places, prisons, funerals that are full of unbelievers all of which can be very hostile environments. I preached in a funeral once. I was asked, there was one believer, one known believer, was the daughter of the man that died. And this man, according to her, was a God-hater. He got up one morning, just like he would get up any day, he knew a lot of people. He was into the biker crowds, and he did a lot of things for the state. He did a lot of goodwill type of things. He was very well known. Many people at his funeral. She asked me, just about everyone here is going to be an unbeliever. Would you come and preach the gospel? I said, sure, I'd love to. The place was packed. There were state officials there. They, by the time he died, whenever the funeral was, four or five days later, they'd already named a section of some off-road place. They already had a sign made on, in his name. He was into off-roading and motorcycles and all of these types of things, and he was finding ways to preserve you know, natural habitats and all this type of thing. So he's a big rah-rah guy and people were getting up talking about their relationship with him and many of them would get up and, and talk about how, you know, I don't remember the guy's name, so just say his name is, you know, Joe. You know, what Joe believed, you know, about the things of 
the future and about the things of the supernatural, a higher power. You know, he just knew that there were many roads to God and that God would honor always, you know, that type of thing. So I had to listen through 45 minutes of that garbage and then get up and preach. And while I was preaching, I corrected, I wrote down the statements and I corrected them and I looked at the person who said them. (laughs) I didn't call them out and say, hey, that person, I just looked at them and went around, okay? That's truth in a very hostile environment. So as I was waiting, I was sitting back by the organ player, there was a drawn curtain, and I was looking at this crowd and I could sense them being jolted and a little discomforted and a little discouraged, a little angry, a lot of hateful looks my way. I said, well, let's see, there's two ways out of here. I've got to go that way. There's a door right back here. And I asked the organ lady, I said, excuse me, ma'am. I said, is that door unlocked? She goes, it sure is. You can just go right out. I go, what does it lead to? She said, the parking lot. I said, good, I'll take that way out. But as you look out upon the masses, as, as you look out to the people in, to whom the gospel's proclaimed, the majority of people could care less. This mob didn't care about what Christ was declaring of himself here. They wanted to be satisfied outwardly. And we can, we can enc- be encouraged just as the street preachers that we have in this church. We have a lot of people in this church who pro- proclaim the gospel in public. They go down to the beach. They go to college campuses. They proclaim it out loud. They literally stand on a soapbox and proclaim the gospel. And then we have people that go witness one-on-one. They proclaim the gospel, the truth. And if you're going to attempt to judge the power of God by the response of men, you're going to throw in the towel quickly. Because the success of the gospel is not in the response of man. The success of the gospel is that the promises of Scripture say His word will never return void. That does not mean that every time it goes out that everyone who ever hears it is going to get saved, by the way. Because the word of God has two effects. When it is proclaimed, it softens and brings people to repentance. And at the same time, it hardens to unbelief. It's like taking a wax candle and a lump of clay and putting them out in a black parking lot in the middle of August and letting the sun beat down on them. What happens to the wax? It melts. What happens to the clay? It gets hardened. Thus the Word of God. Same effect. You you can pour your heart out time and time again regarding the truth of Almighty God and most times nothing seems to happen. You preach here in church. Most times, not in this church, but in a lot of churches, people really could seem like they could care less about the truth of the word. I love this church so much and this body that that's not the case and that's why it's such a joy to preach the word. Because you don't care that I preach for over an hour. (laughs) But all the while, the promises of Jesus Christ will keep us, when we pursue Christ in his truth, as declared, will keep us from ever being tempted to doing superficial styles of evangelism. We don't want to do that. Because all that the Father gives will come. Because they can come, what? No other way. There's no other way for them to come. It's impossible. So we, like Jesus, on the one hand can say, but you won't believe. Believe. But you won't believe. Just believe. This is the gospel. Believe on Him. No, we won't have it. But you won't believe. And on the other hand, 
we can confidently remind ourselves that even so, all that the Father gives guaranteed they will come. So we can keep on and keep on keeping on. Amen? Because as we get to verse 65, I think in two weeks, Jesus goes on to say, no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by my Father. Notice, they can't. They're not able. Now, as a believer, brothers and sisters, if you're a believer in Christ, did you know that you were a gift of the Father to the Son? Did you understand that? All that the Father gives me, he said, will come. If you've come to Christ, you are a gift of the Father to the Son. A gift. This group which has been given to the Father, or been given to the Son by the Father, are known as the elect. There's no way around it. It's called divine election. Can't get around it. It's biblical. It's right here. But even so, we don't stop preaching, do we? Because the Bible says in Romans 10, 17, so faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, meaning the words of Christ. Notice the second part of verse 37. And the one who comes to me, I will by no means, what? Cast out. The second part of this verse moves from the sum total of all believers to the individual. To the individual. Now Jesus made it, has made it clear that human salvation is never a surprise to God. He's never like, wow, I can't believe he came to me. Oh, I rejoice in myself. Never. He brings men to himself by his word, by his spirit, and they can come only at his invitation. Period. And then those that are drawn by God need not fear that they'll ever be cast out. Ever. Jesus is not going to reject or lose the love gift that has been given to him from the Father. So if you've been given to the Son by the Father, he'll never cast you out and you'll never be lost. So to cast out, if you cast out something, is to presuppose that that something is already in. Right? So if something's in Christ, he'll never cast you out. If you're a grace, love gift of the God, the Father to the Son, never be cast out, never be lost, never be forgotten about. Oh yeah, I forgot that I was given Susie before the foundation of the world from my Father. I forgot about her. Never, never. Why? Verse 38. For... I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who? Who sent me. Now the word for introduces the reason why. Jesus will forever preserve all that the Father gives Him. That's the reason. The, the, the mission of Jesus on earth was to fulfill His Father's commands. He came and He fulfilled it. If the Father gives the gift, then Jesus accepts the will of the Father. He receives it and He's going to hold on to it forever. And that gift that was given to the Son by the Father, He came to die for. He came to lay down His life for that gift as a gift. Jesus upholds the Father's will by accepting the gift, laying down His life for you you're in Christ. Verse 39. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all He has given me, I should lose nothing, 
but should raise it up the last day. Now, the word it here, look at the word it. The word it is the totality of the all that's been given. The word it is the totality of the all that the Father gives the Son. So, this same group chosen before the foundation of the earth is the same group that will be standing at the end of the world because he's not going to lose a single one along the way. Isn't that great? Isn't that assuring? What a joy. Now therefore, these all that are given to the Son from all times, from all places, all people, throughout all the world, of which will be standing on the last day of all time, He will never cast out or never lose. They'll be there. The it. The one unit. All believers. That's amazing. That's the body of Christ, you see. That's the body of Christ, the worldwide body of Christ. Jesus did not come simply for Israel. He came for the world. All peoples, of all nations, of all tongues, throughout all the world. And all from those groups of people that were given to the Son, He'll never lose. Ever. They will all be raised up the last day. That's the physical resurrection Jesus foretold of in chapter 5, verses 28 and 29. What a joy. Not only will they never be rejected or cast out, he'll never lose one. He'll never be lost. Now some at this point will say, well, wait a minute. What about Judas? Because John 17, 12 says, Jesus said to the Father, those whom you gave me I have kept and none of them is lost except the son of perdition. Perdition means destruction, which points to his destiny, Judas's destiny, which is eternal torment. Okay? It's very important to note here that Judas, Judas was never given to Christ in the sense of salvation. Judas was given to Christ for the purpose of his earthly ministry, but never given in salvation because Jesus goes on. He says, those whom you gave me I have kept and none of them is lost except the son of perdition in order that the scripture might be what? Fulfilled. And that refers to Psalm 41 verse 9. So in other words, Jesus Christ eternally preserves all that the Father gives Him. He forever preserves them. This is known as the, the doctrine of the perseverance or the preservation of the saints. The perseverance or the preservation of those who are in Christ. A good definition of this, uh, the Reformation Study Bible says this, and I quote, The reason that believers persevere in faith and obedience is not the strength of their own commitment, but that Jesus Christ, through the Holy Spirit, preserves them. John tells us that Jesus Christ is under promise to His Father and to His people directly to keep them so that they never perish. In His prayer for the disciples at the close of the Last Supper, Jesus asked that those whom the Father had given Him would be preserved to glory. Christ continues to intercede for His people and it is inconceivable that His prayer for them will go unanswered. This doctrine does not mean that all who ever professed Christ with their mouth will simply be saved. Those who tried to live a Christian life in their own ability will fall away. That's what Judas tried to do. He tried to live it in his own strength. He was a fraud. Jesus said from the beginning of His ministry, Most assuredly I say to you, one of you is the what? The devil. 
And I continue, belief in perseverance properly understood does not lead to careless living and arrogant assumption, but rather a grateful desire to please the God who saved them. End quote. In other words, if I make a, prof a cheap profession with my mouth that, yeah, I accept Jesus, you know, I believe everything that he did, sure, I'll pray a, a little prayer in my heart to accept him, and there's never any change, there's no reason that a believer should, uh, someone who professes to believe can continue on and have some assurance that they're saved because of God's abundant grace. Remember what Paul said. What shall we say then? Shall we keep on sinning so that grace may what? Abound? He said, certainly not. When someone's saved by this depth of grace, there's a desire to want to feed off the bread of life that came down from heaven. There's a hunger there. And when you're hungry, you always eat. And you're always satisfied. Now to conclude, Jesus closes with an invitation. Verse 40. Now, now Jesus concludes here as he transitions from the sub, the sum total of the all that are saved, raising it up the last day, to the individual, raising him up the last day. Look at verse 40. And this is the will of him who sent me, that... Everyone who sees the Son and believes in Him may have everlasting life and I will raise Him up at the last day. So everyone who looks on Christ, they will recognize Him first of all as the sole provider of everlasting life and they'll believe in Him, which means to embrace Him. And they'll be saved. So the divine side of salvation is concealed in the sovereignty of God. Amen? It's a mystery of God that you and I will never be able to comprehend. The fact that God draws some and not all. The human side consists of this. That those who see Him and those who believe may come and in return they get everlasting life, you see. So when an individual comes to Jesus, they have eternal life. This is more than just living forever. D.A. Carson writes, and I quote, This eternal life is more than mere unending existence. It is primarily the passing over from condemnation to acceptance, from death to life. And then it is a foretaste, the full banquet of which occurs in resurrection life. End quote. So Jesus has made clear that the success of his ministry does not depend upon man's will, but rather on the drawing part of the Father. Here now, he leaves the door wide open. Now get this. He leaves the door wide open to anyone, anywhere, that is willing to enter. Look what he says. That everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have what? everlasting life. It's important to see the, the order of these two verbs here. Believing on Christ is the result of seeing Him. You can't believe unless you see. The only way you can see is if He's been what? Revealed to you. God in His grace reveals His Son to you supernaturally. You see Him because God's graced you to see and then you believe. So Christ must first be revealed by the Spirit before we He'll be received by the sinner. This is a great paradoxical mystery of God and salvation. A paradoxical truth to the salvation of Almighty God. If the Father gives, 
we will see and believe. So how do we reconcile these two truths? How do we do that? You know what the answer is? We don't. We don't reconcile those two truths. They're both in the Bible. They're both clearly taught. You can't reconcile them. These are two sides of the same theological coin. God enabling man and man receiving Christ. Those who don't receive Him are already condemned because they don't believe. And the only reason they can receive Him is because they've been drawn. Divine sovereignty, divine sovereignty is a major theme in the Gospel of John. So we're not through this yet. No one talked about it more than Jesus himself, well, other than Paul, maybe. And we see it, we're going to see it two more times just in this chapter. The divine sovereignty of God and salvation. So, from the divine side, everyone who sees and believes in Christ are only those who are drawn by him. From the sinner's viewpoint, they have to respond to the offer because they want to. For instance, when I came to Christ, when God saved my wretched soul, you know why I came? Because I wanted to. You know why I wanted to? Because I began to understand the depth of my sin. I began to realize my desperate need for, for salvation, that I needed to be forgiven, that I was a wretched sinner, that I was an enemy of God, that He was an enemy of me. I began to desire to want to read the Word of God. Where did that come from? Well, I don't know. All of a sudden, had this desire in me to want to start going to a church. So I started going to a church. I was reading the gospel. I was hearing the gospel. And now I wanted to come to Jesus. I saw Jesus for the first time as who he really is. Although I knew all the same truth, I saw him differently for the first time. So I got on my knees and I cried out to him and I begged for forgiveness. And I said, Lord, I receive you. I surrender. Because I wanted him. I wanted to repent from my sin. I didn't want to live like I was living anymore. I turned from my sin and I turned fully and completely to Christ. I began to hunger for Him. I began to want to know His Word. And I've been a diligent student of His Word ever since the day I got saved. Why do I study the Word? Because I want to. Why do I want to? I didn't realize this at the time when I started studying Scripture. I realized later through the study of Scripture, I began to understand why I wanted Him. I began to realize why I had a hunger for Him. And the reason was is that I was drawn to Christ by the Father. It's amazing grace. For you saved by grace, through faith, which is a gift, right? You're saved by grace, through faith alone, and that is a gift lest anyone should boast. Amen? No one can boast. I can't boast of my salvation. I know I wanted Him and I came. And I came because He drew me. And it was the bread of life that came down from heaven, Jesus Christ, whom I found total satisfaction in because of His ever-abundant grace. Are you fully satisfied with the bread of life today? Do you find full satisfaction in Jesus Christ alone? Or do you come to Him seeking Him for what He provides materialistically, the comforts of life, creature comforts and so on? Or do you come after Him and seek Him because you want Him, because you're hungering for Him and Him alone? 
Now, all of us who are in Christ, there's going to be those times that we're going to seek Him for His hand rather than His face. Am I right? And because we're in Him, He's going to convict us of that. And because He's conforming us into the image of His Son, He's making you and I more like Christ every day. He's going to convict us. He may chasten us, discipline us, to get us back into the ordained plan, preordained plan that He has for us to become more like Christ. Because we're partakers of the everlasting bread that's come down from heaven. I'm going to ask that the men come and prepare to serve us communion this morning. And as they do, I want you to ponder this for a moment. If you find yourself searching for things, searching for satisfaction, that every time you do it, you realize it's temporary and you move on to the next thing. Think about this. Now please pay attention to this. The prodigal son. The prodigal son went out from his father. He went out away from home. You know what he wanted? First of all, he wanted money. He went to his father and he said, I want my portion of the inheritance. Which is to say, you know what, old man? I wish you were dead. Because you only get inheritance once your father's gone. I wish you were dead, old man. Give me what's coming to me. I'm out of here. So he left. Another thing he desired was fancy clothes. Shoes, jewelry, great food, and a lot of partying. That's what he wanted. He went for it all. You know where he ended up? He ended up in a pig pen. So hungry when famine hit that he he would have eaten pig food if he could digest it. But human beings, beings can't digest the pods of pigs. So he comes back to his father. There was his father. Sees him coming. He goes out. He embraces his son. He kisses his son. He kisses his son's neck. He brings his son in. What did he put on him? The best clothes there were. A ring on his finger. Shoes on his feet. Killed the fatted calf. The best food you could... Corn-fed cattle, brothers and sisters. And a party. Everything he ever sought and everything he ever wanted was always right there in his father's house. Always there. The bread of life came down to fully satisfy your soul. And if you're in Christ, feed on Him. Don't be tempted to go out and feed off anything else because nothing else satisfies. And if you're here today, you're not in Christ. And for the first time in your life, you're beginning to hunger for Christ. The reason you're hungering is because He's drawing you. So this is what I say to you. Come to Christ. Come to Christ today. If you're not in Christ, don't partake of communion. Because if you partake of communion, you're identifying with the shed blood and the broken body of Jesus Christ. And if you're not in Christ, and you partake of those things, the Bible says you drink damnation unto your own soul. But I urge you to repent and believe. And partake as a believer. One who feeds off the bread of life, Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's bow and let's pray. Glorious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace that has drawn us to you, for the grace gift of your Son, our Savior Jesus Christ, Holy Spirit which indwells us, resides in us. We thank you, we praise you, we love you, we adore you. We pray that you prepare our hearts this morning to 
partake in that which represents your broken body and shed blood. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.